What does it mean to be called crazy in a crazy world? Listen to Madness Radio, voices and visions from outside mental health. Sponsored by peer-run support communities, Freedom Center, The Icarus Project, and Portland Hearing Voices. Madness Radio can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network and is online at kboo.fm slash madnessradio. Welcome to Madness Radio. This is your host, Will Hall. Today, my guest is Krista McKinnon. Krista is a family counselor who worked for seven years with the Family Outreach and Response Program in Toronto, Canada, focusing on youth going through what is called a first-break psychosis. Today, she is a counselor in private practice, a mental health consultant, and a trainer at PracticeRecovery.com. She's also a psychiatric survivor of a bipolar diagnosis. So welcome to Madness Radio, Krista McKinnon. Hi, Will. It's nice to be here. It's nice to have you, and we actually did another interview with you a few years ago, so if people want to go a little bit more deeply into your story, they can check out the archives on madnessradio.net. And I'm really interested in having you on the show because this comes up a lot, the role of families in helping people through uh, madness, through extreme states. Uh, Some of us find that we need to separate from our families, but other times the family is very deeply connected and everyone really goes into a crisis, and you have a lot of experience working with that um, through the Family Outreach and Response Program in Toronto, Canada, which is really, I think, one of the most innovative family programs in the world that I've that I've come across. And your own interest in working around extreme states and madness and working with families and working with young people going through extreme states, that began with your own experience with bipolar diagnosis. Is that right? Yeah, that's that's exactly right, actually. I initially found a job that was in a drop-in center for psychiatric survivors. And the job posting said, psychiatric survivors are encouraged to apply. And at that time, I had never even heard that term. And I was kind of taken aback by the term. And for the first time, that just seeing those words together helped me to place my experience differently that uh, of being in the system. So you got really involved with the peer movement and the psychiatric survivor movement by getting hired into an agency position, it sounds like. I mean, I was diagnosed when I was 16, and I was hospitalized and forced into treatment at 16. And uh, I pretty much just didn't buy into it. I had moments of buying into it, but for the most part, I didn't really believe any of it. So I didn't, I wouldn't have ever involved myself in any kind of anything relating to mental health. I really just kind of tried to shut, shut the whole experience out because I just didn't buy it basically and it was only when later I saw that job posting with the word psychiatric survivor it it occurred to me that you know there might be other people like me out there who you know who felt they were not treated properly or misunderstood rather than having this mental illness thing I think I think you're right I think there are a lot of people who are thrown into the system they come out of it and they just walk away from it and we don't ever hear from those people because they're not involved in agencies or treatment or they're not being researched for sure. I mean, the the I would hear from those people a lot as a family counselor because I would hear from their families who, you know, often the people who were diagnosed and once they've left the hospital, they believe they're doing well. It's the family that has been informed by uh, the medical community, by the nurses, by the social workers that, you know, it's their job, the family's job to make sure that their relative continues to take their medication and stays on the treatment path. Is that what happened to you, that your family had a very different view than you did when you came out of the hospital? 
Yeah, I mean, my family, I think my family did what classically most families do, which is they get their education about mental health issues, about what gets called mental illness from the medical system, from the hospital. And so my family was told that I had a biological brain disease that required, um, in my case, lithium to correct the, the, the brain disease and that I'd have to take the lithium for my whole life and um, that I'd always have to be on guard and they too would always have to be on guard for symptoms of any kind, even even with the medication. There was no education for my family around recovery or wellness or what it might look like to put it behind me. It was just sold to my family as a lifelong thing that we would have to cope with. And how did you first end up in the hospital? What was it that happened? Were you in some kind of altered state or some kind of crisis? If you had asked me at that time, I definitely would not have said I was in crisis, but um, I was hospitalized at 16. But when I was 14, I was uh, very depressed and I was preoccupied a lot with uh, thoughts of suicide and just I was a very dark person. And uh, I went, my family took me to the doctor who said, you know, she's fine. It's just regular teenage angst. But then I just, I got sort of caught up in doing drugs. And then when I ended up being hospitalized at 16, it was because I was really out of touch with reality and I wasn't sleeping and I wasn't eating. And, you know, for several days at a time, my thoughts were very discombobulated and I just had a lot of really unusual beliefs. So at 14, you were very depressed and and suicidal. Do you know why that was the case? Having worked in the field for a long time, I'm more aware of trauma-informed practices, and I know that I experienced trauma as a child. I don't remember it still much to this day, but I mean, I more think that there's a link to what was happening to me during puberty um, and the sexual abuse that I had when I was young than I used to, because I, I used to really just, oh, no, no, I don't remember any of it, so it doesn't affect me. My understanding of trauma has evolved to a point where I'm not quite sure exactly how it all pieces together, but I, I do think that that might have had something to do with, you know, during my puberty years, blossoming into a woman, having sexual abuse as a child might have, you know, been related to my depression. And so at 16, it sounds like things started to unravel a bit with not eating and not sleeping and taking drugs like marijuana, like psychedelics or what What was going on? I mean, was there anything that sort of triggered that? Or I did smoke a fair bit of marijuana. I never liked it. It's still a mystery to me why I kept doing it. Maybe it was peer pressure, but it wasn't, wasn't something I particularly enjoyed. It made me very paranoid. Um, so I would see everybody around me laughing and having fun and I would smoke weed and I would just be very, very paranoid. Um, like I would believe that everybody was out to get me. There are people behind me following me. People were like eavesdropping in on my conversations, this, this sort of thing. But my, my drug of choice that I enjoyed was more in the psychedelic realm. But it got to the point where even if I wasn't on psychedelic drugs, I would be hallucinating and seeing things and kind of, you know, hearing things and just having very confusing experiences. And the fact that I wasn't on drugs but was still experiencing it was very unusual to me. So I didn't quite know what to do with that. So what I did do was I stopped doing drugs (laughs) because I wanted it to stop because it was a little bit freaky. You know, I believed that I was going to be famous. I would see magazine covers and I would believe that I was the person on the cover of the magazine. Um, My maiden name is Binkle and there was, you know, Christy Brinkley on the cover of InStyle magazine or something. And I, I thought that was me and you know, I, w- I, was, I would be get very engrossed in watching nature in a way that was unusual. Like I would sit in the middle of the street and I would, you know, watch the bugs crawl on the pavement and talking very quickly. I would make a lot of sense out of numbers. I would piece together numbers and make sure that somehow that was connected to my divine mission. And I believed I was, you know, incredibly brilliant. And I, I wrote all of this poetry and I made it into a book and I bound it with yarn. And 
um, I went to go apply for a job at um, the Dairy Queen with my with my um, you know my my handmade book of poetry, which is you know not not a skill set required for working at Dairy Queen necessarily. So you know just unusual things. So most people who talk to me for any period of time, you know two or three minutes even, would know that I was you know not my usual self. I guess you could say. And then at what point did you end up being forced into treatment? I was staying with my friends at the time. My family was away um, on a vacation and they had left me with very close friends of the family, my, my best friend and her parents. And I just kind of ran away from their home and I packed up my guitar and I was heading to Toronto where I was going to go live um, on my own and do my own thing and be the famous superstar that I was. I don't really remember a lot of it. You know, I mean, and even at right when I was 17, 18, I didn't remember a lot of it because my state was just so heightened. But I know that I was picked up, I think, by my friend's parents who took me to the hospital. And, you know, behind the scenes, there was stuff going on that I don't know about. Like, I'm sure they called my family and, you, you know, decisions were made that I was not privy to. I remember I was walking down the mountain in Hamilton from the West Mountain to downtown trying to catch a bus. And then her family picked me up in their car to take me to the hospital basically. So you spent some time in the hospital, you came out of your state, and it sounds like maybe getting you to sleep was one of the main things that that helped you to come out of your state. And then what happened next? Getting me to sleep and getting me to eat both because I wasn't I wasn't doing either because I had this belief that all the food was contaminated and poison. And so I wasn't sleeping or eating. So so eventually, I mean, I, I did come out of my state and I was allowed to, you know, I started with day passes and then I got a week pass and Eventually, I was able to go home and, and be with my family again. And my family um, had gotten their education from the hospital. And, you know, we did the whole family meetings and my family went to do the family support group stuff. And they were told by my psychiatrist to and the treatment team to make sure that I stayed on my medication pretty much at all costs. And that was as, as my parents, that was their job to keep me healthy and safe and keep me on my medication. So my family had said to me, Krista, you need to take these medications if you want to live in our home, basically. And if you don't take these medications, we're going to kick you out. So at 16 years old, I didn't have um, my, any life skills, really. So I, I, I really felt like I didn't have much choice but to take the medications that I knew I didn't like the way they made me feel. I didn't think I needed them. And I also didn't really believe that I had this lifelong illness that these pills could cure. So for me, it was coming out of hospital and coming to terms with that in my family was, you know, it was an ongoing battle between my family and I for a while until I just basically decided to trick them because I had no support on how to come off the meds. My family were just following orders. I mean, you know, I don't fault my family. They were just doing what the doctors told them to do and they believed they were acting in my best interest. Um, and they were scared, you know, they wanted me to be safe and they didn't want to see me have another episode. So not having any support coming off meds, I just, and not and knowing that I would get kicked out if I was honest about being off meds, I just basically would take meds about a week before I would have my blood level taken and I would take two times or three times the amount I was supposed to. And magically this worked. And I basically did that for three years. <laughs> so, you know, through like the, you know, three weeks out of four, I wouldn't be on the meds because... I just wouldn't take them. And then when I knew my blood levels were going to getting tested soon, I would take them. And um, I'm still kind of amazed that that worked. And I, of course, I just flushed the, the ones that were extra. And so after you came out of the hospital, did you ever have any other kind of extreme state experience or crisis again, even though you weren't taking the medications as you were being told to? 
I mean, I, I was a teenager. So, you know, I, I was, I was, I had a boyfriend break up with me and I cried for five days and locked myself in my room. And, you know, I mean, you could say I, I did have extreme states, but I, I think that all teenage girls <laughs> and, and boys too have extreme states. I think it's part of being a teenager. So, you know, my, my, extreme states around being a teenager were immediately considered she's having another episode because I already had this lens you know I was being viewed through this lens of you know she has bipolar disorder but I think had that never happened my outbursts my extreme states whatever you want to call them would have just been chalked up to teenage angst so you didn't have anything that was like a psychotic episode that ended up in the hospital after that no, I had some, you know, I did drugs at, after I got out of the, like street drugs after I got out of the hospital a little bit. And I, you know, I would, so, I mean, I had, you know, I'd be psychotic after I got out of the hospital, not taking lithium because I was t- smoking pot again, you know, and that pot would make me psychotic. Every time I smoked pot, it would make me to this day if I smoke, which I don't, but if I were to smoke pot, I'm pretty sure I would become psychotic. So, um. So yeah, I did have, but not, not, not in the way that I had the time I was hospitalized. I didn't have like a five day, you know, ongoing. And also I kind of knew what was happening. So if I knew I I learned how to see the thoughts and I could, I knew when to be quiet, basically. I knew when to not talk about what I was thinking and feeling. So basically after I got out of the hospital, I was fine and I didn't have any other major episodes. And then uh, when I was 18 and I was applying to go away to college, well, actually, when I got accepted into college and was leaving my family home at, at that point, I just de- I just decided to tell my family because like there was no point in having the charade anymore because they didn't have the leverage of kicking me out of the house anymore if I didn't take my medication. Because, I mean, two years had gone by where I basically wasn't really taking it and was fine. So I told my family, who I think were really kind of taken aback by the whole thing, but they took my word for it. And uh, I mean, really, what could they say at that point? So... So I've been medication-free since 18. And so now you're a counselor and work uh, with a lot of families dealing with similar kinds of situations that, to what you went through. Are those similar dynamics that you see, this conflict between the young person who says, look, I don't need these medications, I don't have a problem, and the parents who've been basically told by the hospital and the medical system that this is a disease and they absolutely need to be on the meds? That, that's something that you see a lot as a family counselor. Mm-hmm. I see I see that a lot as a family counselor, definitely. When young people do decide that they want to taper off of medications completely, which inevitably most young people will decide because, you know, of all of the side effects, you know, there's sometimes it's acne, sometimes it's weight gain. The, the kinds of side effects are really not, you know, I mean, nobody likes them, but during high school and, and younger ages, it, it can be a little bit more jarring even. So, it's really common that the young person will want to come off the meds and the family, they're taught to be an ally to the medical community. So when I'm working with families, I try and teach them to be an ally to their relative rather than to the medical community. And that's not to say that they go against what the doctors say, but if their relative is saying, listen, I hate this, I'm gaining weight, I have acne, I know it's supposed to be helping me with my mood or whatever, but I just don't want to do it anymore, that my quality of life sucks. I will work with the family around how can they support their relative with the life issues that their relative is facing at this time. And, and you know, the, the life issue that their relative is facing at the time might be that the side effects aren't worth the, whatever gains that the medication is giving them anymore. That's a really common power struggle. And you think about young people, people and teenagers, people in their 20s, there already are a lot of power struggles going on. Raising teenagers as a, as a parent is already a difficult challenge. The, when the medication becomes something that is a power struggle within the family, 
it can be really damaging to the relationship. And really, family members, ultimately, most family members want to support their relative in recovery. So what I'll often say to families is that their most important recovery tool that they have is their relationship. So while it might seem like what they really need to do is just get their relative on the meds because that will make them well, and that'll make sure they stay well, that's not, that's not always the case because if somebody is really determined to go a different route, an alternative route, any kind of other route, and they're not getting support from their family, they're just going to turn to other people. Or they might not be able to find any other people like me and do something damaging to themselves. So, I mean, really, ultimately, you can't do any harm in supporting your relative around figuring out how to deal with the issues of their life, even if the issue is that they want to come off their meds. Because maybe one of the compromises, if you have that alliance, is that, well, let's talk about going slowly off your meds. Let's talk about switching meds or let's take this seriously, but doing it in a responsible way rather than putting in the situation like you were put in of doing something that because taking a double, triple dose of lithium before you get your blood draw in order to trick your parents into thinking that you're taking your meds. I mean, that's a pretty risky thing that you were pushed into doing because you didn't have that alliance with your family. Mm, exactly. And in terms of being an ally to your relative rather than the medical community, as I said, I don't mean you sh- you go against the medical community. But if you're supporting a young person who's questioning their diagnosis, they're thinking they might be able to handle their life, not identifying as someone with a mental illness for their whole life, you can be an ally in helping them to approach their psychiatrist in a way that is more like you know, doctor so-and-so, how can we work through this? You know, it's not, it's not about alienating medical professionals, but rather together collaborating. You know, that's where your strength as a family support person can really come in, you know, because the, a young person might not have all of the skills yet required for diplomatic, effective communication. Um, you know, you can use your own skills to help them out. Those are helpful ways that, that you can be on their side. Another difficult dynamic that families get into is when a young person is in a very wild, different reality. And they're talking about the FBI tracking them, or they're talking about them being connected to a profit. This is where, again, that power struggle takes place. How do you work with families around dealing with with a young person who's got those unusual beliefs? Mm, that's a really great question. Because again, what I will see commonly in families is, is, especially with really far out beliefs, is that the family, again, becomes desperate to get the relative on their medication. So the family will try and convince the relative, like, listen to you, listen to how sick you sound. You know, like, no, there are no cameras in the corner. Come on, you're really sick. We have to take you to the psychiatrist. You need to take your meds. And it's that's really damaging to the relationship too. Now, of course, your reality is very different than theirs. You don't see cameras. You don't, you're not seeing the strange, unusual things that they're seeing. But in fighting them on their reality and trying to convince them of your reality, you'll only damage the relationship further. So how I try and uh, engage families around the situation is how can they relate to the emotions behind what their relative is experiencing without necessarily tapping into the content of it? So, you know, the content is that the relative maybe believes there's the FBI watching them. So the emotion behind that would be fear. So the family doesn't have to say, oh, yeah, you know, I know the FBI are after you. It's not about that. But it's like, wow, you just look so scared right now. You know, are you okay? What do you need so you can feel less afraid? So, you know, you don't have to deny their reality because likely what that'll do is alienate you from them. But rather you can engage them on a level of emotion. I think one of the traps, too, is that sometimes when someone is medicated, 
they will be medicated to the point of just being blunted and tranquilized, and they may not be talking about those wild beliefs, so they might not be having those unusual states. What would you say to a family that says, look, we know that the medications work. When he just takes them, he stops thinking that the FBI are after him or he stops um, having these weird beliefs. I mean, it's hard for families when they're feeling burnt out. If a family has, their relative has been extremely boisterous and belligerent, and maybe there's been police involvement, um, the experience that the family member has has caused a lot of ruckus within the family home. And finally, they have peace and quiet, you know, because the relative is on medication and now everything's okay because, you know, for the family, it can feel like relief, like, oh, I finally get a break. But that's not life. That's not, I mean, if somebody is so medicated that they're tranquilized, they're not really living their life, it gives the family a break. But that's, that doesn't have to be the end game for their relative, that their relative is really passively just, you know, not really out there living life. So the question is, you know, once everybody has caught their breath, you know, how do, how do they engage with their, how does the whole family engage with their relative to help them to reach a quality of life, which might include medications, but not that many that they're tranquilized. But it's more, you know, a question of quality of life because the side effects to the meds can be so damaging that there's no quality of life left. And this is something that comes up a lot is that families are so stressed out and they really just want to control the person who's got the diagnosis. And I think often the work is about getting them to think about, well, what can they do to change themselves and work with themselves and, and help themselves in their own crisis, which is really what is going on as well. Exactly. A lot of expectations uh, and hopes get damaged unnecessarily, really. Uh, so, you know, when someone becomes, someone in the family is diagnosed with a mental health issue, the, the family just, oh, you know, now my son or daughter will never be that doctor that I thought they would be or, you know, whatever. They'll never run the family restaurant or, you know, so all of these expectations get kind of just, you know, people become brokenhearted and even so much that the families will say that they're grieving for their relative. You know, and I say, your relative is not dead. You know, this horrible thing has happened you know, and they're, they're figuring it out and they're going to move on from it, but they're, they can still have a completely full, they can still run the family business. They can still be a doctor. Like it's not over for them, you know? So a lot of it is having compassion for families when they, cause they grieve. I mean, for, for them, it's real that they, they're, they believe that their relative is going to be disabled for their whole life. Cause that's what the doctors have told them. And that's what they believe. So you, so, you know, there's, there's a level of compassion for their grieving, but then there's also a level of educating them that, like, hey, wait a second, how did you come to believe that? Because maybe that's not true. You know, maybe you don't have to have low expectations. And so much of this is just what any family goes through because even without mental health diagnosis or hospitals or medications in the picture, sometimes you, your kid just doesn't want to be a doctor or doesn't want to run the family business. And that itself is a source of incredible stress and conflict in the family. And then realizing that, you know, any parent has to go through a certain amount of letting go, I think this is something that gets short-circuited when that mental health diagnosis is there because the parents get a feeling that they have to be the lifelong custodian. They have to be the guardian. If they, if they let go, the consequences are going to be too dangerous because, you know, my, my son or daughter is, is incapable of learning how to be independent, how to take care of themselves. That's exactly true. And it's counterintuitive to the recovery process because what people actually need to do well and recover is they need to be empowered. You know, they need to be actively contributing to their world, to their family, to their community. And those are a lot of things that get cut off when, when someone comes out of the hospital and they're in recovery. You know, there's, there's being in recovery, which is going out and living life. And then there's being in recovery, which is tranquilized on the couch. 
but a lot of what has to happen, I think, is just a very well-rounded education around what are the different possible beliefs of why this happened to your relative? Like, okay, so there's one narrative and that one narrative is that they have a biological brain disease that they're going to have for the rest of their life. Okay, that's one narrative. Let's explore what some other narratives might be of why this happened and where their future could go. And it's not about saying that narrative isn't true. For some people, some some people have the experience of being labeled with um, a psychiatric illness and finding it very helpful and they take the meds. It helps them to dull their states. You know, that works for some people, but it's not like that for everybody. So for those that it's not like that for, you have to broaden the horizon a little bit, you know, and expand different possibilities. And tell us about the kinds of work that you have done in terms of you will get emergency calls really from families that are absolutely desperate. They're at the point of calling the police or calling the hospital and say the son is is just holed up in the basement room and won't come out and is only communicating in very bizarre ways. And then you would go into that home. And what would you do in that situation? When I worked in um, Toronto at the Family Outreach and Response Program, we had the the liberty to visit families in their homes. And often I would work with a family for a month or two and I would hear, you know, what's been going on for them and their struggles with connecting to their relative. If, for example, it is what you said, you know, a lot of kind of hanging out in the basement, not coming out much. So I would have appointments with the family member in their home. Instead of at the office, I would go have appointments in their home. And then I would say, you know, well, where is where is the basement? Can we ha- can we meet near the door? And maybe the relative would hear us meeting and maybe not. You know, that would be like the first time. And then the next time I would go, I would, you know, do you mind if I just knock on the door? I'm just going to yell down and introduce myself and ask so-and-so if they want to come up. They would, yeah, I'm down here. No, I don't want to come up. You know, and that would be session two, you know. And then there were times where I would sit outside of the door and I would say, hey, you know, I'm, I'm here. I'm just going to be here for a little while if you want to chat with me. You know, I've been talking to your mom for a couple months. I have no idea of your side of the story, but she's really just confused how to connect with you. And if you want to talk, I'm here. And I would, it's, I'll be here for 10 minutes. Just, just, I'm just hanging out. So really non-threatening, just making myself available as a bridge sometimes between family members. If you're just tuning in, this is Madness Radio. And our guest today is Krista McKinnon. She's a family counselor who worked for seven years with the Family Outreach and Response Program in Toronto, Canada, focusing on youth who are going through what's called their first break psychosis. Today, she is a mental health consultant, a counselor in private practice, and a trainer at practicerecovery.com. She is also a psychiatric survivor of a bipolar diagnosis. And how do you convey that you're not on the parent's side if you've been meeting with the parents and you haven't been meeting with the person who's in the state and really you, you have only heard their side of the story and you're working for a mental health agency? How do you build that trust with um, the person who's going through the extreme state? This is where my own personal experience has come in as a helpful thing because I've found that in the instance that you described, for example, I'm, I would probably like knock on the door and I would say, you know, I'm Krista. I, I do work for a mental health organization, but I've had some similar experience as you, you know, like I was diagnosed when I was young as well. And sometimes just telling people that you've had the lived experience and you understand what it's like to have forced treatment and to not really be on the same page as everybody kind of disarms people. They're more curious about you, you know, so they'll poke their head out and kind of check me out and maybe slam the door on me one day. But the next day, you know, eventually people tend to come around. And I think really the reason they come around is more for curiosity than anything else. Like, who is this person that has also been diagnosed with something is talking to my parents, you know. When I was in the hospital as a young girl, you know, I had never met anyone with mental illness, like big bad mental illness, except what I'd seen on Law and Order and things like that. So, you know, 
my uncle at the time came to visit me and he's like, you know, you probably don't know this about me, but I have a diagnosis of bipolar as well. And I remember being just blown out of the water like, wow. So he's he has a job and a wife and he's got two dogs and he's an awesome guy and he's funny and everybody loves him. So like, it's okay. So sometimes when I say to young people, like I've been diagnosed as well, just so you know, sometimes it's the first time they've met someone outside of the psych system who has had that experience. So that too kind of piques their curiosity and kind of builds a bridge. Sometimes it seems that people who are going through states, especially young people, it's kind of a way of creating distance from the family. And do you think that the, a lot of the work that families need to do around recovery is really to learn better boundaries, like how to be supportive but not intrusive, how to be helpful but not overbearing or controlling? For sure. And a lot of that is, again, the result of families believing that they have to be in the position of caretaker where maybe they don't have to so much be in that position. So I've heard of families trying to put medication inside, you know, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich and, you know, telling their relative that, you know, you really shouldn't go apply for that job. I know you really want to, but you're not ready and things like that. So, you know, as a parent, if you have a concern that your relative is not ready to go apply for a job, There are other ways that you can communicate things like that to them without stepping over their boundaries. I mean, this is, you know, if if the if the person is 15, there might be some different considerations, but I'm talking more young adult. A lot of the education work that I do around with families around boundaries is sort of like what actually is your responsibility and what isn't your responsibility and how do you tend mostly to your own affairs? Your own affair might be that you have extreme worry that your relative is going to go to this job interview and fail miserably and then become depressed. And that's your worry. That's your business. So your business is not them failing. Your business is your worry. So let's talk about your worry. <laughs> so I kind of I try and engage it like that because it's it can be really easy for there to be boundary confusions around families believing that they know what's best and telling their relative how to live their life it happens in young adult teenage years anyway it especially happens when there's a mental health issue complicating it so there's a learning process that's really a mutual learning process and parents really need to learn some basic things themselves and not just be putting everything on the person who's identified as the patient has the diagnosis. Oh, you've got to change. You've got to clean up your act. You've got to look at your stuff. Well, actually, it's a mutual thing that part of the work is um, turning that around and saying, well, if I can't control my son or daughter, maybe I can get a little bit of control over my own life. Maybe I need help with that. And that's a big lesson that I think a lot of us have to face at some point. Just in general, there are going to be people that we're close to, that we love, that we have to be patient with. And if we do want some change, we have to look inside of ourselves of how do I worry less? How do I find a way to be more accepting? How do I find a way to spend time with them that isn't focused on fixing them or getting their problems solved, but actually just focuses on the, the things that I want to do that I enjoy spending time with them around? Mm-hmm, exactly. And actually, there's a family education course that the families that I work with will take about recovery. And often near the end of the course, after they've been through the eight weeks or 10 weeks or whichever, they'll often say, you know, oh, you know, I spent some time with my, my son, for example. And, you know, he said the strangest thing to me. He said, Mom, you're so much more fun to be with now. 
it's exactly for that reason because a lot of the recovery education work for families is around managing their own emotions of worry, despair, maybe expectations being broken, and then learning how to relate to their relative as they are, who they are in the moment, and seeing their strengths and enjoying them for who they are. So once they start to practice their more hopeful self, the self that can see the strengths, once the families start to engage with their relative from that perspective, inevitably it's more enjoyable for the relative and the relative likes to spend time with the family members more and simple things like talking about a tv show will happen which would have never happened if they were trying to tell them what to do and how to live their life and being more controlling that's a big part of family education as well as the idea of of a strengths-based approach and tell us a little bit about that because i think that's really key i think that what happens sometimes in families is there's almost like a hypnotic trance that can take place where one person is identified as having a problem and then all that person's life that fits into that idea of the problem, their weaknesses, their limitations, all that gets amplified and gets focused on. And pretty soon, the person is almost like a spell is being cast on them to enforce them into thinking of themselves in this very negative, downputting way. Tell us about the work to sort of break that spell. The Diagnostic Statistical Manual is a book filled of problems and symptoms. And um, when someone is given a diagnosis, they're you know put in a category of you have these problems and symptoms, and that's why you have this particular diagnosis. When working with families around a strengths-based perspective, basically flips it around on its head. And rather than thinking of the problems and symptoms, you're actively instead looking for all of the positive traits and attributes and skills and strengths that a person has. So I'll actually do a strengths-based inventory with families and I'll have them look at all the different positive character traits that, are, that can exist and you know which ones do you see your relative as having and in what ways do you see that particular character trait playing out in their life. So I collaborate with families to become detectives almost in looking for all of the positive traits and strengths that are sometimes hiding in their relative because after something as damaging as a hospitalization and an autobiographical disruption like being labeled um, the strengths kind of sometimes they lay dormant or they're harder to see because the person is really struggling with who they are and Maybe they're really believing that they're nothing but an illness. So the, the idea is to shine the light and, and really amplify anytime you see a strength, amplify it and make that become the priority. You mentioned before that recreational drugs, pot and psychedelics and then not sleeping and eating really contributed and triggered your own state. And maybe that was connected to some trauma and abuse that you had in the past. What's your sense of the different causes that lead people to have these first episodes, their first break with reality, their first crisis? I think people have sort of emotional overwhelm for whatever reason. So, you know, a lot of the time I think it is is trauma related and and that's a subjective thing. The, you know, so what might be really traumatic for one person might roll off of somebody else. So, when when I say trauma, some people think, well, nothing, my son was never abused or my my husband was never, you know, there's no real trauma in the background, but trauma could be bullying that you never saw <laughs> or and one of the things I I see is sometimes people are really upset and really hurt by a breakup like they have a huge relationship that doesn't go that's really important that's important in terms of their first love or they're extremely involved in the other person and that ends and I think maybe the people around them don't realize how devastating that can be but actually that's a key part of why it is that they start to go into an extreme state yeah that's exactly right I've also seen that a lot that you know somebody might easily say well that's just, she broke up with her boyfriend big deal well no for for her 
that might be an enormous deal because she may have attributed her entire identity to being that person's girlfriend. So yeah, so what is traumatic for one person is not necessarily traumatic to another. But I think that what makes people become psychotic or have a first break, a first episode of psychosis is really, it's a lot of things, you know, racism, sexism, homophobia, poverty, you know, oppression, all sorts of things. But ultimately it leads to a state of overwhelm that is so great that sort of as a protective measure, the person starts creating a reality for themselves that it just doesn't resonate with everyone else around them. Do you think sometimes that the state going into an extreme state can be part of the whole transition from adolescence to adulthood? So in other words, a a person kind of creates their own reality as a way of saying, I'm independent, I'm different than you. I've worked with a lot of people who the family may not be very religious or spiritual, but wow, the young person has gone into this incredible spiritual place where that gets called manic or they get labeled bipolar, but there's a real important process going on of them saying, look, I'm a spiritual person. I do not speak the language that my parents do, and I want to live that independent identity as a spiritual person, but I haven't been able to really make it happen for me in the family. Maybe I'm not being listened to, or maybe I don't really understand what's going on because it's all new to me. And then this sort of extreme states or what gets called a psychosis erupts as a way of bringing that right into the fore that says, look, you've got to find a way to be independent of your family with your own perspective and your own beliefs. I mean, for sure. That's why it's hard to say, you know, where does this come from? I mean, the, the medical community will say it's a, it's just a biological brain disease and something chemically is happening in the brain, which is true. I mean, in a way, because, you know, you're nervous about something, something chemical is happening in your brain. You're excited about something, something chemical is happening in your brain. I mean, yes, this is true. But life is more mysterious and magical and complicated than that. Okay, so maybe something chemical is happening in the brain, but what? why? In what way? And how can we change that chemistry? Are there other ways to change the chemistry? I think a lot of the approach of the psychiatric survivor movement and maybe the consumer mental health movement has been to really separate from families and to kind of get some distance and independence from parents, in part because so many of us have been hurt and damaged and abused even by our families. How do you work with a family when that is going on in the background? Maybe there's sexual abuse or maybe there's been physical abuse or even emotional bullying that's going on. The nice thing about doing family work is that you get to to see all the different pieces of the puzzle, so to speak. So oftentimes when I start working with a family and teaching them about recovery and ways to be recovery oriented, like, for example, the strengths based approach, a family will just realize that I don't do that at all. So often families will say things to me like I've been doing everything wrong or, oh, I, I can't believe how horrible I've been. Once they start learning about um, how to be more supportive, once they learn the skills of support, often they'll realize the ways in which they haven't been supportive. Sometimes that looks like family sessions where there's a lot, there are a lot of apologies happening, which is really nice to see. You know, when, when someone's diagnosed with a mental illness, it's like, okay, now we don't have to understand them because they're just mentally ill. So finding ways to make sure that that doesn't happen so that the, vo- the other person's voice is heard and there's equality uh, when there is some some very serious physical abuse or sexual abuse happening in the family, it's something that needs to be addressed separately first. It may be that the father who is physically abusive or the mother who is sexually abusive, the the relationships are so damaged that it's not in a place where, you know, yet where the family can come together. I mean, where there's sexual and physical abuse in a family, 
teaching the skills of strengths-based approach and how to have good boundaries. And it won't even resonate because the pendulum is so far on the other side. So, you know, it may be that a different kind of therapy is needed more specific to, you know, cracking down sort of why those abusive behaviors are playing out. How can you heal your own self so that you're not being abusive? And sometimes the abuse goes in the other direction too. Sometimes it's the person with the diagnosis who is being emotionally abusive to the parent. What what would you do with that situation? Yeah, I mean, that that does happen. So again, and it's about boundaries go both ways. So one thing is that, you know, within psychosis, I think if a parent or um, a relative wants to support someone that they love who's having extreme states, one thing that I say is like, you might have to become more comfortable with the expression of strong emotions. So sort of stretch your boundaries a little bit, you know, maybe allow someone to yell and scream a little more than you might normally, because the expression of strong emotions is is maybe what is required in the moment. But on the other hand, you know, you absolutely do not have to accept abuse. So how do you know, you know, what your limits and boundaries are? I worked with this one mom who uh, her son Every time she would try and communicate with him, she would go to his house, knock on the door. He would answer the door and he would just scream at her and scream at her and scream at her and scream at her. And she sometimes would scream back and they would have big arguments. And then, you know, she didn't want to do that anymore. So she said, you're like, I don't know what to do. I just I show up at his door and he screams at me. So one of the one of the tools that I like to work with with families is around compassion building. So it can be difficult to sit with people who are expressing strong emotion, particularly if it's anger directed towards you specifically. Um, And in this case, it was very important to this mom that she stay connected to him. So we talked about her next time she went to his house doing a meditation with her breath, wherein she would breathe in all of his, and he's yelling at her and screaming at her, and she would stand there and breathe it all in. And in her mind's eye, she would breathe out calm, peace, tranquility. So she tried it. And what happened was he screamed and he screamed and he screamed and she didn't react. She just stood there and practiced her breathing, breathing in his anger and breathing out peace and calm and she said it was really hard and took a lot of focused effort on her part and it was a little bit scary for her but she did it and what ended up happening was he kind of petered out you know he yelled and yelled and yelled and then he 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 saw that she wasn't going anywhere and she wasn't responding so he got it all out and you know after five minutes or so of yelling he kind of toned it down and the yelling got calmer and calmer and he kind of just collapsed into her arms and gave her a hug And this was like a huge breakthrough for her. I mean, she could not believe it because he had not, you know, physically held her, touched her in a long time. And, you know, you wouldn't expect that to be the outcome of a bunch of anger, screaming and yelling directed at you. But that's, that was it though. You know, he gave her the hug and he closed the door. I mean, and sometimes recovery, family recovery is like this. She found a way to not experience it as abuse and to to work through it with him. And then they were able to connect. Their, their their relationship got much better actually you know after that and he ended up becoming quite well but that you know right when he was fresh out of he was hospitalized against his will she was the one who put him in hospital so a lot of the anger you know it wasn't coming out of nowhere there there you know he had legitimate reasons to be upset so i know from doing this work myself this, this can be very demanding very challenging often there's issues of suicide or the police are involved or people are desperate. What is it that really um, sustains you? What is it that inspires you to keep going and doing family 
mental health recovery work? I I love when I see people having light bulb moments. You know those those moments where you see they they just they're starting to cease a situation differently than they had previously, and that changes everything. I find it very inspiring when I start working with a family and they're very stuck and there's a lot of anger and the whole thing feels stagnant. And then you kind of take all the different people in the family and, you know, talk to each of them based on what each of them need. And you see them come together in a way, you know, these light bulbs, you know, suddenly the son understands the mom's perspective and the mom suddenly understands the son's perspective and they try something different and the whole thing shifts you know, I always say that families are like mobiles, you know, in the wind, like one piece will turn just ever so slightly and then they all move. So it's really, it's quite a beautiful thing to watch. And also, you know, it's inspiring for me to be able to give families the education that my family never got, you know, because my family, my family, are they're wonderful people, you know, they, they would have done anything to support and encourage me in my wellness, but they just, they were not taught how to do that. And bring us up to date about the work that you're doing now. You're no longer with Family Outreach and Response in, in Toronto, and you've started a new organization, PracticeRecovery.com, which I've been very privileged to be involved with. In my whole, I mean, as an adolescent, but also as an adult, I've, I, I'm kind of a social media nerd, and I've found a lot of support myself in online communities for all sorts of things. You know, I was a mom who didn't have a lot of support as being a mom raising kids in Toronto. I, you know, wanted to lose weight at one point and I joined an online group. So I'm kind of a nerd this way and I I love social media. So often we would get asked in at Family Outreach and Response Program from all around the world, uh, people asking us about our content and our curriculum. And, you know, we were really busy. (laughs) Like we were happy to share it, but we were just busy. I mean, we didn't have it in a clear, organized way to share internationally with people. So I got the idea to start practicerecovery.com as a way of bringing recovery education online. And I had experienced so many meeting wonderful people online through different community online courses and community networks. So I just thought it was a perfect way to bring this body of knowledge online. And I partnered with Mother Baron and Family Outreach and Response Program to bring this family recovery curriculum online. And Krista, we're just about out of time. How do people get in touch with you and find out more about the online recovery courses that you're offering? Anybody that wants to reach me can reach me through email at Krista at practicerecovery.com or you can visit the practicerecovery.com website. Uh, Some of the family curriculum that I've been talking about in this interview is available on a website called family.practicerecovery.com. Krista McKinnon, thank you so much for joining us today on Madness Radio. Thank you. It was my pleasure. You've been listening to an interview with Krista McKinnon. She's a family counselor who worked for seven years with the Family Outreach and Response Program in Toronto, Canada, focusing on youth going through what's called a first break psychosis. Today, Krista is a counselor in private practice. She's a mental health consultant and a trainer at the online recovery organization, PracticeRecovery.com. She's also a psychiatric survivor of a bipolar diagnosis. That's all the time we have on Madness Radio. Thanks for tuning in. You've been listening to Madness Radio, Voices and Visions from Outside Mental Health, co-sponsored by the Icarus Project, Portland Hearing Voices, and Freedom Center. Madness Radio is hosted by Will Hall and producer is Leah Harris. Madness Radio is based at KBOO in Oregon and can be heard on FM stations on the Pacifica Radio Network. Listen on the internet at madnessradio.net and on iTunes. Contact us at radio at madnessradio.net.